Welcome back to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. In this episode, we're continuing a recent session from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia, titled Lyme Disease, Challenges and Innovations. Good afternoon. I am Ruth Linfield, State Epidemiologist and Medical Director of the Minnesota Department of Health. I will discuss the epidemiology of Lyme disease in Minnesota and talk about some of the challenges from a state health department perspective, including prevention, laboratory diagnostics, adverse consequences of prolonged courses of antibiotics and legislation, and how we are addressing these challenges. In 2009, Minnesota ranked eighth in terms of the number of confirmed cases reported and 12th in terms of the incidence, 20.2 per 100,000 population. However, incidence is not even throughout the state. In our highest incidence counties, for example, Cass County, the incidence exceeded 100 cases per 100,000 population, which is higher than the overall incidence in Connecticut in 2009, which was 78 per 100,000 population. Many of the issues in Minnesota are similar to those in other endemic areas. Cases in Minnesota are similar in median age to cases reported from high-incidence parts of the country, such as in New England or the Mid-Atlantic, as well as to overall national figures. The age range is the range of the human lifespan, but one-third of cases in Minnesota and one-quarter of cases elsewhere are in individuals less than 18 years of age. Over 60% of our cases and about 55% of cases elsewhere are male. Here are the reported cases of Lyme disease versus the confirmed cases, those that meet the national case definition. Please note two observations. The number of reported Lyme disease cases have increased from 500 in the mid-1990s to about 4,000 last year, a nine-fold increase. However, only about 35% of reported cases meet the national case definition. It is important to have a common surveillance definition so that the burden and trends in different geographic areas can be assessed and compared. Ascertaining that reported cases meet the case definition is very resource intensive and in many cases involves following up with healthcare providers and patients. Minnesota uses the national case definition that was updated in 2008. However, the classification of confirmed cases is consistent with the approach taken in Minnesota since 1996. Some of the increase may be due to increased awareness among the public and among healthcare providers, increased compliance with reporting requirements, or improved surveillance. However, Lyme disease has been endemic and well-known in Minnesota for 15 years prior to this increase, and no new approaches to testing or reporting occurred at this time. Notably, we have documented an expansion of ticks into areas that border our endemic areas in Minnesota. We do think that the increase represents a true increase in Lyme disease in Minnesota. We have had an increase in cases both in our endemic areas 
and in those bordering the traditional endemic areas. We have also documented increases in other tick-borne diseases, such as human anaplasmosis and babesiosis. Risk of tick-borne diseases in Minnesota is mostly limited to hardwood and mixed hardwood forests in the southeast, central, and north-central regions. I am now going to discuss challenges from the State Health Department perspective on prevention, laboratory diagnostics, adverse consequences of prolonged courses of antibiotics, and legislation. In 2008, we interviewed about 1,000 people with reported Lyme disease, as well as human anaplasmosis and babesiosis about their personal protective measures in the month before illness onset. We found that a large number of residents ended up with tick-borne diseases despite taking some of the most widely recommended precautions, tick checks and wearing long pants. However, only 42% reported using repellents. Because of these findings and the identification of Powassan virus in Minnesota, another tick-borne disease but thought to have a short transmission time, we have been more aggressively encouraging the use of repellents. Our response has included providing information on our website, in talks and with the media, on personal protection measures. We also have information on our website about environmental tick control. Our website is frequently used for information on tick-borne disease. For example, in May 2009, the tick-borne disease portion of our website had 40,000 hits and was the third most frequently visited site after the pandemic influenza section and the press release news page. The Metropolitan Mosquito Control District provides consultations on environmental control with residents living in the seven-county Minneapolis-St. Paul metropolitan area. You have heard from Dr. Marcus about laboratory challenges. We face the same issues, including testing in patients who have only been ill for a few weeks and have erythema migraines. By now you know that patients with erythema migraines and exposure in an endemic area can be diagnosed with Lyme disease, and laboratory testing is not needed for diagnosis. One frequent misinterpretation is that of a persistently positive IgM test and a negative IgG test more than a month into a nonspecific illness. This is not indicative of Lyme disease. Our approach to laboratory diagnostic challenges is to provide information on laboratory testing for Lyme through multiple venues, including health advisories to local public health agencies and clinics, information on our website, including links to CDC and the Infectious Disease Society of America for further information, lectures, and articles. While antibiotics are an important tool for treating active infection with Borrelia burgdorferi. They've also been used to treat individuals with persistent symptoms that a clinician may attribute to Lyme disease, even when laboratory results do not support Lyme disease. As Dr. Steer discussed, there is no evidence that prolonged antibiotics help in these instances. An important challenge is raising awareness regarding the adverse consequences of such prolonged antibiotic use. Adverse effects have ranged from nausea to bloodstream infections in patients with central venous catheters. A death due to septic thrombosis from candida 
was reported in a patient treat for 27 months with cefotaxime for presumed Lyme disease, but with no laboratory evidence of it. Other severe adverse effects include venous thrombosis, severe allergic reactions, cholecystitis, and infection with Clostridium difficile. About a year and a half ago, an infection with C. difficile resulted in the death of a 52-year-old Minnesotan woman who was treated for presumed Lyme disease with multiple courses of antibiotics. This is another tragic example of adverse consequences of prolonged therapy for nonspecific symptoms thought to be due to Lyme disease. Note that a positive IgM and a negative IgG after years of symptoms is not indicative of Lyme disease. We have had two other C. difficile cases due to treatment for presumed Lyme disease. While prevalence of adverse effects from antibiotics is difficult to assess, it is important to think of these effects when assessing the public health impact of treatment for presumed Lyme disease. Another challenge on the state level is the push to have state legislatures get involved in the protection of physicians who prescribe non-standard prolonged courses of antibiotics for Lyme disease, as well as ensuring health insurance coverage for prolonged courses of antibiotics for Lyme disease. Last year, a physician protection bill was brought before the Minnesota Senate and House Health Committees. Prior to it becoming law, a compromise was reached with the Minnesota Board of Medical Practice that agreed to engage in a moratorium for a time period not to exceed five years or the time at which double-blind peer-reviewed studies have resolved the issues, whichever is first, on the investigation, disciplining, or issuance of corrective action. As you've heard from Dr. Steer, four studies have been done in the past and have not found a lasting benefit to prolonged antibiotic treatments. However, because patients with persistent symptoms are desperate for answers and for relief of symptoms, the use of prolonged courses of antibiotics has become a very heated and politicized issue. To summarize, Lyme disease incidence in Minnesota is increasing likely due to the expansion of ticks into areas bordering endemic areas and an increase of Lyme disease cases, as well as other tick-borne diseases in endemic areas. Careful and accurate surveillance is important for measuring the burn of disease and tracking trends. However, it is resource intensive. It is critical to make information available to the public and healthcare providers about all aspects of Lyme disease, including adverse effects of prolonged antibiotic use. There is great concern about persistent, nonspecific symptoms that some individuals attribute to active Lyme disease. This is increasingly becoming a political issue. At the national level, it is important to determine why Lyme disease is increasing in different geographic areas in the country. We must develop and implement available preventative strategies. We need better laboratory diagnostics, especially for the early stages. We need better methods for direct detection of Borrelia burgdorferi and for biomarkers indicative of active infection. We need improved understanding of the prevalence and etiology of persistent symptoms in individuals following antibiotic treatment for Lyme disease and in those with no evidence of Lyme disease. Lyme disease is full of complexities. Public health agencies need to ensure 
that understandable and useful information is available to the public, healthcare providers, and legislators. Thank you very much. Thank you. We now have time for some questions. For those in the back, please use the microphones that are there and also uh, their microphones up front. Do we have any here from the audience? Dr. Schick. Yeah, thanks. It was a, a great panel. I wonder, um, Dr. Steer, if you could talk a little bit about the early invest, a little bit more about the early investigation. When you and your colleague were called in, was this sort of immediately obvious to you, or were parents aware of the tick story? Or how, you know, was there a moment where you guys really put the story together? What the children had was not clinically different from juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, but it really was the clustering that suggested this was something that had not been described before. I mean, one house after another on certain roads, there was a child that had arthritis, and then often the parent would say, you know, I had what I think my child had. So it validated what the mothers had picked up on and, and shows the importance of cluster analysis in acute infectious diseases as well as chronic infectious diseases and other diseases. But I'm quite grateful for the experience that I had at CDC, and that's what made possible doing this sort of thing. You've been listening to Public Health Grand Rounds from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, presented on ReachMD's series, Grand Rounds Nation. Be sure to join us again for the next episode of the nation's best Grand Rounds. Until then, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and thanks for listening.